Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 148 in the series, Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 10th of April 2016, entitled The Genesis Account, Part 25, and the Bible reading is taken from 2 Peter, Chapter 1, Verses 1-4. to Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. I'd like for you to open your Bibles, first of all, this morning to the book of 2 Peter. <clears throat> and yes, we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Genesis, but I want us to begin with just a couple of verses here for our reading. 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read just the first four verses. I invite you to stand with us to honor the reading of God's Word again from 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning, you have obtained like precious faith to what the Apostle Peter had in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to you today. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Father, thank you so much that as we focus our attention to your word this morning, Lord, we realize fully well. Lord, we have no right to demand anything, even to expect anything within ourselves. But Lord, we come boldly in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, as a people that are in great need and knowing that you care. And asking, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, we need not the words of man, neither this man nor any other, But, Father, we need the power of your Spirit to be present with us, to make your words alive unto our hearts, because only you know the hearts of each individual here today. Now, Father, we realize that you knew when you laid these thoughts upon our hearts to speak this morning, you knew exactly who would be here. There are no accidents with you. But, Father, now as these words are spoken this morning, we pray for that unction that can only come from you. Speak to those hearts. Meet the needs of this people. Save those that are lost. Restore the backslider. Build up, encourage, strengthen, and challenge afresh every one of your children. And we'll give you all the praise and all the thanks for it. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. We do continue this morning in our study. The book of Genesis, the Genesis account, which is part of our entire study on contending for the faith and the fundamentals of that faith that we are to contend for. As we move to our 25th sermon, I think, in the part on Genesis, we move on this morning. Now, let me just remind you, thus far in these past 24 sermons on Genesis, we have looked at these fundamental foundations that are laid in the book of beginnings, the foundations that God laid in his word that would be built upon all the way through scripture. 
We've looked at the authority of God's Word, at the assertion of God's existence, at the absoluteness of God's creation, the advancement of the human race, the accountability of mankind, the administration of home life, the acuteness of man's fall, the abolishment of Satan, the atonement for sin, the acceptance of offerings to God, and last week we finished up on the affirmation of God's judgment. I want to give you one more in our series, and this will finish off our series probably this Sunday and next Sunday, and we're going to look at the assurance of God's promises. (laughs) the assurance of God's promises. I want to read to you again verses 3 and 4. Remember here in in 2 Peter, as the apostle Peter is writing, and he's writing these words, he says, according to his divine power, according to God's divine power. It's not what we have or what we don't have, what we can do or what we can't do. This is according to to the divine power of God. He hath given unto us all things. There's nothing left out. All things that pertain unto life and godliness. God's divine power has given unto you everything that you need for life and for living for him. He says, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. It's through knowledge of Him. It's through Him, knowing Him, knowing all that He has done, knowing as we will see. God gives us all of these things in His Word that we might know. All the promises are made to you that you can know. He says, whereby whereby are given unto us great and precious promises that by these, by these promises that God has given to us that are working according to his power, ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through love. May I say, first of all, that whatever else you get today, we need to understand, you can escape the devastation, the destruction The death that comes as a result of the lust of this world, you can escape that only for one reason, because God, by his power, has promised you that you can. It's God's promises, and you have a choice. There's only two. He gives us here. We can either be partakers of the divine nature, or we can face the consequences of our worldly natures. There's nothing else. Now, with those thoughts in mind, I'd like you to turn your attention back to the book of Genesis. And as we think on this matter of the assurance of God's promises. Now, I noticed that Brother Steve, he's gone out. I noticed this morning that he was being careful when he gave you the definition of some of those words that he was using the Cambridge Dictionary. Not just any old dictionary, he said, but the Cambridge Dictionary. Well, I can tell you what the Cambridge Dictionary says that promises mean. It says it's the act of saying that you will certainly do something. It's saying that there is absolutely no doubt it is the act of saying you will certainly do something. You promise it. But I like Merriam-Webster even goes a bit further in his definition in the dictionary. He says a declaration that one will do or 
refrain from doing something specified. In other words, a promise can be, as Cambridge says, a promise that you will certainly do something, but that may be certainly to do or not to do something. And he goes on to say, a legally binding declaration that gives the person to whom it is made a right to expect or to claim the performance or forbearance of a specified act. May I say to you, there was a time in the history of mankind when we didn't have to have not just written words, written contracts, but written contracts that have been witnessed by somebody else that has been notarized or maybe even had to go before the solicitors to prove what's being said between two people. There was a time when these dictionaries were written that all it really took was for me to go up and say, you've got my word on it. That's it. I promise you, that's it. Now, in our Western societies, that was usually sealed with a handshake. In some societies, another way. In essence, it was that word. That's all that it took. And even when the definitions of these words, I want you to notice there, there is absolutely nothing in any of those definitions that says it can never not be kept. A promise is something that is absolute certain that what you are saying will be. Whether it's a positive or a negative or something you will do or you won't do, a promise is meant always to be kept, never ever to be broken. Why is it today? both in this country and in my own country and in the United States, why is it that so many people are so disillusioned with government, with politics, with those that are making the rules for their lives for them to live by? Why are so many people fed up? I would have never thought, even not too many years back, that I could possibly see a political race that was so diverse as what's taking place across the Atlantic right now <laughs> with those that are leading the things that are going, why? Because in fact, it's come down to the point, it doesn't really matter so much what their platform is that they say that they're running upon because nobody believes them anymore. Why are people so disillusioned? Because of broken promises. Because of people saying, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. It's amazing because, you know, people can get pretty passionate, as I can, about politics sometimes. I feel strongly about politics. I feel that there's a right way and a wrong way and that we're responsible. And I can get passionate with anybody about it. That's why I try not to talk about it too much with the pulpit. I get passionate enough without getting on the politics as well. But the truth is, is that as Christians, we should care. And we should try to make a difference. But what I want you to understand is the greatest difference we can make is, first of all, getting back to God. What about what we say? <laughs> can people count on what I say that I will do? People are where they are today that it really, even, even issues that in bygone years people have been so passionate upon, Issues, economic issues and moral issues and whether they uh, want to abort babies or whether they don't and, and whether they want to tax more or tax less and more government or less government, all these things that mattered so much. Suddenly they've taken a second seat, back seat, because people don't believe anything they're saying anyway. They can write these platforms. They can say they're going to do all these things, but then they don't see it being accomplished. People 
are in that situation because of broken promises. Why is it that almost half the people that do what we saw yesterday, when they stand before a congregation of people and before God and they take their vows, they make promises one to another, promises, promises that they're going to stick to, that they're going to keep through, through, through better, for worse, no matter what. They're going to keep those promises to one another. Why is it that almost half of those people end up in the divorce courts, <laughs> end up going there? And do you know what? The last figure I saw was something like 42%. <laughs> do you know what? There's a lot higher percentage of that that break their promises that are unfaithful to each other, that never end up in the divorce courts. Why? Broken promises. It wouldn't be if everybody kept the promises that they make when they stood there and made them at the wedding altar, there would not be any divorce courts <laughs> because the promises would never, ever, ever be broken. They would be there for better, for worse, no matter what. They're going to do it. You see, people have promises broken to them every day. Broken promises mean broken hearts, and broken hearts mean broken people. There are many broken people in this world. They're broken because their hearts have been broken because the promises have been broken to them. Do we really stop and consider what we are doing and what it means when we make a promise to someone, when we give our word to someone? I say again, promises are only meant to be kept, no matter what. Now, promises can be given conditionally or unconditionally, but the only conditions that are legitimate are those that are laid down when the promise is made, which we'll look at in Scripture in just a moment. I'll do this. I'll do that. I won't do this. We make promises every day of our life. Now, I don't know how many of you ever studied any American literature. We were blessed to get to study both British and American literature in school. And there was an author by the name of Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington was an American author that became slave, uh, became famous because of his book entitled Up from Slavery. I want to read you a couple of quotes from his book this morning. He said uh, he met this ex-slave, somebody that used to be a slave uh, in the South in the United States. He said, I found that this man had made a contract with his master. Two or three years previous to the Emancipation Proclamation, if you don't know what that was, that was what Abraham Lincoln signed into law in 1863 that set over three million slaves free that had been owned and slaves to other people. But before that was ever made, he had made this contract with his master to the effect that he was going to be permitted to buy himself out of slavery. He was going to be able to pay so much a year until he got that sum paid. And while he was paying for himself, he was to be allowed to labor wherever 
that it was best for him to do so. So he found out that there were better wages in Ohio than in Virginia where he was at. So he went there to work, and when he made it to Ohio, when that Emancipation Proclamation was signed, he was still in debt to his pastor about 300, or to his master, his pastor, his master about $300 that he still had owing for his freedom to become real. So the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, and of course, according to that, he had no obligation to his master because he was set free. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. But he continued to work, and then he ended up walking. Now, look on the map. That's a pretty good little walk from Ohio to Virginia. But he ended up walking that distance back to his master until he could give him the last dollar with interest that he had promised him that he would pay him for his freedom. Booker T. Washington said in talking to him that he said, in talking to me about this, the man told me that he knew that he did not have to pay. Legally, there was nothing that bound him, but that he had given his word to his master, and his word had never been broken before. And it wasn't going to be broken then. And he felt that the only way he could ever truly enjoy the freedom that had been given to him was if he kept his promise. You see, I say that because that impressed upon my heart and I thought about that because too many people today, even if they don't plan to break a promise, too many times they're looking for an escape route. They're looking for some way that they can get around it. They're too ready to accept a way out if it comes along. Or rather, when they think that there's an escape route, they might say again, <laughs> promises are only as long as they're bound by the law. But folks, it's not the law that binds promises. Promises are meant to be kept, period. There are no loopholes. There are no escape routes. A promise is a promise. When promises are made to us, I ask you this morning, what is it that determines your level of confidence in those promises that are made to you? I would say, first of all, it would depend upon the person that was making the promise. Also, it would depend upon that person's ability to follow through with whatever they are promising to you. And with that, what kind of a track record they've had of keeping their promises in the past. In other words, I could, with all the sincerity in the world, I could come up and say, Andy, when you wake up tomorrow, I want you to check your current account. And I promise you, I'm going to have a million pounds in there just for you. I can promise that. Do you think Andy would be foolish enough to believe it? Because of who's making the promise? Well, I hope it's not quite that. <laughs> Certainly because of my ability to keep that promise, even if I were foolish enough to make it. We find that sometimes it can break down along the way. You see, have you ever had people make promises to you and they were sincere they were genuine, 
But when they made that promise, maybe your thought was, oh, yeah, we'll see. (laughs) Or maybe, I'll believe that when I see it. (laughs) You may not have said that to their face, but that's exactly what you were saying in your mind. I'll believe that when I see it. We used to have a saying, I wouldn't take that one to the bank yet. (laughs) You've been written a counterfeit check. It may make a promise, but there's nothing there. There's no point taking it to the bank. They're not going to give you anything for it. That's the way some people's promises are. We used to have another one. The pigs fly. (laughs) You know, there's a better chance of a pig flying than for that to actually be, that promise to be kept. Or certainly one that I guess was about as definite as you could get. Somebody promised you something and your thought might have been, there's a better chance of hell freezing over than for that to ever happen. (laughs) Many times people make us promises, but all these thoughts, these ideas go through our mind because of either who they are, what they're able to do, what they've done in the past. I read the story of two little girls (laughs) They were playmates, and they were playing, and they decided to count the money that they had. And they sat down, and the one counted up her money, and she looked at the other one, and she said, I've got five pennies. The other one counted her money, she looked up, and she said, I've got ten pennies. First one says, no, you haven't. <laughs> You've got five just like I do. The little girl said back to her, oh, no. But my daddy promised me when he gets home from work today, he's going to give me five more pennies. So I got ten pennies. <laughs> she knew that promise was as good as if it was already in the bank, as good as if it was already there. She could count that money because she had absolutely no doubt that if her father had promised it, it was done. Do you know that that's exactly the kind of confidence we can have? That's exactly Language of the Bible. The Bible speaks that way many, many times. It speaks of things that aren't as though they were already. You see, that's really what faith is all about. It's about trusting the promises of God. It's because of the promise that God has made to you. You see, we'll get into some. Yes, he promised that he was going to send his son to die on the cross for you. And he fulfilled that promise when he sent him. And he promises that if you'll put your faith and trust in him, he will save you for all of eternity. The confidence of your salvation will always come not on your feelings, not upon your experiences, not upon what you've done or haven't done or anything else. It will come upon your confidence in the promises of God. You see... Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. I don't know how many of you remember. We've preached on that passage a few times in my umpteen years. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. There, that word, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Here's hope. Here's all the the hope that you might have, all the hope that exists. Faith is the substance. Faith is what supports that hope. Faith is what holds it up. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. If you take away the faith, 
hope false. There is none left. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And what's the rest of the verse? The evidence of things not seen. That's crazy to the world. Faith is the substance of our hope. Faith is what gives us all of our hope. And faith is the evidence of things that you can't even see. It's not what you can see with the eye. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. <laughs> the world may only see this. By faith, we see something far, far greater. Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Where does your faith come from? It's believing the promises of God. This is where you, without this, if you take away God's word, if you take away his promises, faith cannot exist. Our faith that holds up all of our hope, that's the evidence of the things that this world cannot see with its naked eye, it all comes by believing God's promises, believing God's word. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You can never have faith, and therefore you can never have hope until you hear and believe what God says. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. Sometimes that is so hard, isn't it? It's easy for us to read those verses, but we try to understand. We try to figure it out in our, in our feeble minds. And yes, I do too. I like to figure things out. I like to know what it's all about. The thing is, I know, we've already read that, I know. It's by the knowledge of God. I know enough about God that even though, as we sang earlier, even though I may not be able to tell you how and why on all of it, I know that what he says I can count on. I can take it to the bank. I can stake my eternity on it. G. Campbell Morgan, the great London preacher, he made this statement. He said, I believe the promises of God enough to venture an eternity on them. What are you staking your future on? <laughs> a simple question. You've got some kind of a future. Now, it might be one minute long, it might be an hour long, it might be a day long, it might be a hundred years long. What are you staking? What are you staking the rest of your future on? G. Campbell Morgan said, I believe the promises of God so much that I will stake all of my future. I will stake eternity upon the promises of God. William Carey, the great Baptist missionary who went to India, He's known best for the words, expect great things, attempt great things. If we truly expect that God's going to do what he said he'll do, we will attempt much more with our lives. But that wasn't all that he said. Expect great things, attempt great things. But he said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. <laughs> what does your future hold? You know, sometimes it can be cloudy, it can be uncertain, it can be troublesome, it can be worrying. But he's saying, hey, <laughs> it is as bright as the promises of God. Are we living our life upon what we expect, what we see, what man promises us, or is it based upon God? 
Another great missionary, David Livingston. You can go to London today. You can go there to Westminster Abbey, and you can you can see his tombstone there in the floor of the chapel. When he came to the Zambezi River, which is like the fourth longest river in, in all of, of Africa when he was there as a missionary, he needed to get across to the other side. But the chief, who was on the other side, had been very badly mistreated by some unworthy, treacherous traders that had, that had come through, and he had made a vow. He had made a promise that he would kill the next man to come across, the next white man to come across that river was a dead man. Livingston was there, and that was his next step, and he was there by his fluttering candle. They didn't have electric torches in those days. <laughs> and as he was there by his candle reading his Bible devotion, he came to a promise of God in Matthew 28, 20. It says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the world, even to the other side of the Zimbazi. I am with you always. He had that promise to that chief that he was going to kill the next white man, but he knew the promise of God. But <laughs> when he had that, that was of more value. That's what he could count on. And his words were, these are the words of a gentleman of the strictest and most sacred honor. Speaking of the words that God had made to him, he says, I will not flee. He could have turned back at that moment, but it was the promise of God that God would go with him always, even to the end of the world, that took him across that river and on in, and he became a great missionary that was used phenomenally by God in Central Africa because he believed the promises of God. How could these men be so confident in the promises of God? Well, any promise is only as good as the person making the promise. <laughs> it's only as good as the ability of that person to accomplish that promise. And it's only as good as their track record shows. That being the case, can you count on the promises of God? You see, either God's Word is sure and we have real hope, or it's not, and we have no hope. There is no in-between, folks. Remember, we stated back when we were looking at the authority of God's Word, and many of those things will interlink with this, and so some of those things we'll not spend a lot of time on today and next week, but I said to you then, God's Word is either authoritative if it is authoritative at all, it is authoritative in all. If there's any authority there whatsoever, if God's Word is authoritative, then it has to be authoritative in everything. If you take away, if you have one error, one mistake, one broken promise, the authority is gone. That's why I say that as we made that statement, it is, it is if it's authoritative at all, it's authoritative in all. We could also say it this way. Every promise of God is sure, 
or no promise is safe. <laughs> Either every promise that God makes, we can have absolute total assurance in it, or we have no assurance at all in any of it. It can't be any other way. The assurance of God's promises, the foundation for that assurance is laid right here in the book of Genesis. Now, Genesis is not the beginning of God's promises, but it's where God makes his first promise to man. You see, God's promises are eternal, just like he is because his word is eternal. God's promises existed even before anything was created in the book of Genesis. Preacher, well, here's the way that Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 puts it. This is Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. I'm writing what I'm writing according to what I believe as one of God's chosen, one of God's children, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. I'm making this statement because of my faith as a child of God in the promises of God, acknowledging that this is truth. He says in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. He said, as a child of God, based upon my faith, my trust in his word, acknowledging his truth, I'm saying to you, in hopes of eternal life forever, that God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. God promised me eternal life before the world even began. But hath in due times manifested his word through preaching. And you thought I was the only one that was getting up here ranting. Paul said, hey, that's the way God lets it be known. His truth. That's the way me manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. You see, it's important today, not that you believe what I say as a man, not what you believe my opinions, and I've got lots of them, I promise you, and I believe every one of them, almost. But what Paul's saying is, hey, based on my faith, my trust in every word that God speaks, acknowledging his truth, my hope for eternal life was a promise made before the world even began. And now has me passing that promise on to you through the preaching of his word. You see, it's not important if you believe my opinions, my ideas. You know, sometimes I go to all this trouble to literate these notes and start them all with the same letters to try to help. Well, you know, none of that's really important. That's to try to help you remember the truth, 
God's word, this of everything that is spoken today, what's vital is that it's God's word. That's the way that you can know it. That's the way that you can trust it. God's promises are eternal. Everything about God is eternal. They didn't begin in the book of Genesis, but it's in the book of Genesis that we find God begins making known those promises to us. He begins to lay the foundation for many other promises that he's going to give us because if he makes those promises, if he doesn't keep them, then what makes us think he's going to keep any others? But he lays that foundation of promises that he would give us throughout the Word of God. We began by defining what a promise was. Can't believe that clock. We ain't even got to Genesis yet. I tried to do a bit of research, Brother Daniel, just to figure out how many promises are in the Bible. Anybody venture, anybody got any, any ideas how many promises you think are in the Bible? 366, you'll find that printed in some places. Why? Go the one for every day of the year. Sounds good, doesn't it? Anybody, any other ideas? How many? How many thousand? 2,000. Well, I, I've seen 1,500 and I've seen 3,000. I haven't seen 2,000. So that's, you know, that's, that's falling right in there, though. I've seen anything from a few hundred to some that even believe there's over 30,000 promises. The reason they get that 30,000 is because, depending upon the debate, unless you want to go in, I'd really appreciate if somebody would take the time to count all the verses in the Bible. But there's supposed to be something like, uh, you know, 30. 30,102 or 30,000, yeah, it's an even number because everybody talks about this, you know, 118th Psalm being the middle, but you can't have a middle verse if you got, you know, uh, even numbers. And, and the, the thing is, folks, there's a bunch. And the reason why is there so much, why is it so hard to go and count the promises of God? Why do we read and study and, and, and look at all these things? Well, there's a lot of reasons. You know, first of all, you know, People look at promises as different things. Some people that count almost all the verses, they think, well, if God says it, that's a promise. Fair enough. If God says it, it can't be broken, that's for sure. But others are looking more specifically, God says, I will do this, and I will do that, or I won't do this. And so they come up with a different number. And, of course, some of those promises are repeated, and some of them are recorded in more than one place. And so they go all through the Bible. So we can say safely this. We could probably safely not only say that there are hundreds, but even thousands of promises of God in the scriptures. And if anybody wants to go and see how many they can count and see how many different numbers we can come up with, that might prove interesting. But for the sake of this morning, I want you to realize there's a bunch. And what we're wanting to see from scripture is that each and every one of them, every single one, if it's God's promise, there is no question about it being fulfilled. Now, I wouldn't even begin to attempt to start a series on all the promises of God. I mean, even whole books have been written just listing out all the promises of God and whatnot. But as we look into the book of Genesis, I thought we are going to maybe finish next week. It might be the week after now because we're not looking to see everything that God has promised. But I want you to see enough to know that you can be assured 
of the promises of God. You can be more sure of a promise that God makes to you than any other promise that's made anywhere in the world, no matter how legitimate it may or may not be, no matter how many people sign it, there is no promise that's made by more honorable. There is no promise that's made by anybody that has more assets to fulfill it. There is no human being alive that has the track record that God has in fulfilling his promises. So as we look at these things this morning, we're going to come back and we're going to look at just a few things, not all of them, but we're going to look at some of the promises that he made to Adam and Eve, promises to Cain, to Noah, to Abraham, and just look at what God said and what God did and see the foundation that's being laid. There's one verse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that I'll give you as we wrap things up this morning. This is not, as we will begin to see in Scripture, not necessarily the first promise that he makes, but it's the first promise that he makes to us for a Savior. And he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Speaking to Satan, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Satan would bruise the heel of Christ when he went to the cross, but that God would literally crush his head. Jesus Christ would crush his head. That's the promise of the Savior that's coming. And I want to look over these next couple of weeks at these promises that God has made to you, the assurance that you can have in those promises, that you can have the confidence, the faith. You know, the same God that G. Campbell Morgan was talking about, that William Carey was talking about, that David Livingston was talking about, is the same God that you have today. You can have the same confidence. You can know with absolute certainty that with God, you have everything that you need. What was the verse that we began with? You're given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these... You might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I wish, you know, I hate even being able to leave a service this morning and not go through all the promises that God has made to you to save your soul, to save you from the lust of this world, to give you life everlasting with him. I want to promise you today, I want to promise you that God, through Jesus Christ, will give you everything that you need for this life and the life after, for your human life here, for your eternal life there. God, in his promises, will give you all that you need. Today, you may, you've got a future, but what's it based upon? You don't have to go another day. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You don't have to go without hope. You can put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He'll save you. I'd love to take the Word of God and show you how He'll do that this morning because you see, coming to Christ, getting saved, is not an emotional experience that maybe you cry your eyes out. Some people do, some people don't. It's not even about walking down the aisle and kneeling here in the front. You can walk down, you can kneel, you can pray, you can do all those things and still get up just as lost as when you came down. People do that for a reason. 
He says that we won't be ashamed of him. People look for help. They want somebody to pray with them. All those things are good, but it's for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In your heart today, who do you trust? Who do you believe? Man or God? Is your future, your eternity, is it based upon anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you? Father, I don't even know where to stop. Your promises are so great. And Lord, I had hoped to get even further this morning, but I pray that you'll take these simple thoughts, that you'll use them in the hearts of each and every one. Father, I pray, because you know each one here this morning, maybe some of your children are here this morning, and maybe they've been having doubts and struggles, and maybe their faith just needs to be increased. Maybe today they need to just recommit themselves to you, to your word, to your promises. Maybe there are those here that have been saved, but they're walking afar off, and Lord, today, maybe they need to just get along with you, be drawn back to you, rekindle that trust that they once had in you. There may be those that, regardless of their religious experiences, they've never genuinely in their heart trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Lord, today, would you please speak to them? They may have another week till we come back together. They may have another day or another hour or another minute None of us know what the future holds, but whatever future they have, I would ask you again to remind them, what are they basing it on today? Your promises or man's? What you've promised or their own feelings? Help them, Lord. Help them not to risk their eternity. Help them to be able, have the faith and trust to look to you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. 